Recovery Elevator, episode 231. Something that I keep telling to people is you don't have to have a serious drinking problem to have a problem with drinking. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Odette. She's 30 years old from San Diego and has been alcohol-free since December 18th, 2018. So everyone who has the courage to come on this podcast has an incredible story to tell, shares profound and insightful strategies. But guys, this one is special. If I could peer into the future, I'd think we'd see this interviewee, Odette, playing a significant role with the advancement of human consciousness on the planet. Hell, she's already doing it. Big beings get started early, and she's rocking it. In this interview, we talk about trust, knowledge versus willpower. We talk about what is recovery. She shares her thoughts on relapse. We talk about the power of intentions, surrendering to outcomes, the comparison trap, aka journey envy, and how you can become your own best personal cheerleader. I'm not sure if y'all knew, kidding, <laughs> there is a recovery elevator retreat next month, August 14th to the 18th, in one of the most beautiful places on the planet in Bozeman, Montana. And we've got a couple spots left. Guys, if you find yourself struggling to make that final push into an alcohol-free life, hoping to build that in-person community, then this is where it's gonna happen. What is this retreat gonna be like? I can tell you with one word, fun. Go to recoveryelevator.com for full details and to register. Thinking about attending one of these retreats or a sober travel trip is scary. My advice, listen to the body and not the mind. The book, Alcohol is Shit. I know I mentioned it was going to come out mid-July, end of July, early August, mid-August. Well, this is the biggest project of my life and I don't want to rush it. Um, there's some strategy with this launch. I've got the retreat in August. I don't want to completely blow the circuits, overload my plate, launch a book, and put on the yearly recovery elevator retreat. So I'm thinking about launching it uh, end of August or mid-September. Or here's another idea. Actually, my mom had this idea. She goes, hey, Paul, how do you feel about releasing it September 7th? You know what that date is, right? I was like, yeah, mom, I do. That's my five-year sobriety date. So that might be the date, and I'll let you know. And before we get any further, let's hear from Team Badass, Cafe RE. The three most important lessons I've learned while quitting drinking are, we can't do this alone, we need accountability, and a supportive community is key. In the private unsearchable Facebook groups Cafe RE, you're going to get all three and much more. What does private mean? Well, these groups are unsearchable on Facebook. Who's in the group and what is said can only be seen by members. You get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to ditch the booze. These groups are capped at under 350 members to ensure a quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking doesn't have to suck. In fact, it can be a lot of fun. For $19 a month, you too can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and much more. Oh yeah, you'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get started. Since the interview today is a bit longer than normal, my section won't be quite as long, but I want to insert dialogue into your day about control and how it relates to the level of an addiction. Yes, this is the C word, and in a recovery, this means control. In fact, a fun drinking game with Hey, 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 with LaCroix, everybody, would be to take a drink every time you hear someone say the word control in a 12-step meeting. With an addiction, and this is usually in the early stages, in the beginning, why does the personality, ego, you, resist acknowledging an addiction? Because it's acknowledging a part of you that is out of control. So the addiction represents part of us that we are having increasingly more difficulty controlling. Therefore, we double down on controlling what we can control. This gets painful. Don't know about you, but it did for me. So we try to control volumes, temperatures, channels, stations, brightness, our pets, our kids, our friends, our parents, 
our coworkers, other drivers, our yards, the color of our grass, our emotional states, the spiciness of our foods, control everything. And the more the drinking is out of control, the more we attempt to control our external environments. This is the main driver of why control is such an important concept to deepen with and to become aware on the level of control we are placing on the external environment. Now we are left with two choices to let that part remain out of control or do something about it. So again, option one, do nothing that gets ugly. And that's not what this podcast is about. So we're not going to cover option one, option two. This is where you come in, saddle up. Once an addiction has been acknowledged, it can no longer be ignored and it cannot be addressed without making major life changes, such as changing your self image, your entire perception, finding a new consciousness, your life foundations, your ideas, beliefs, judgments, thoughts, changing all that, and about 243 other things. In short, it's a fuck ton of opportunities to change for the better. We don't want to recognize this addiction because it's our natural state as human beings to resist change. Therefore, we resist acknowledging our addictions. You may be asking yourself, hmm, have I acknowledged my addiction? I don't know the answer to that with 100% certainty, but I'd feel comfortable betting the farm you have because you're listening to this podcast. So does this snapshot about control resonate with you? Do you agree with this? Can you recognize your level of control in your external environment? Is this degree of control ramping up, ramping down? Think about it. How do you address this control? Well, directly and indirectly, we've covered it for the past 231 episodes. But the best technique for a full inoculation of control is awareness. Just be aware of it. Okay. Before we hear from Odette, let's hear from today's sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 4 out of 5 employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. That's ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator, E-L-E-V-A-T-O-R, ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Odette, how are you? Hi, Paul. I'm doing great. How are you? Odette, I am doing great. And listeners, you guys are in for a treat. All interviewees on the Recovery Podcast are courageous. They all have incredible journeys, stories, tales, strategies, in techniques to share with the audience. But guys, I've been, I've had this one circled on my calendar for a while for a couple reasons. Odette has become a dear friend on my journey. I first chatted with her on episode 128, which came out on July 31st, 2010. So I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode. And she had one week of sobriety. Um, and also today, Odette hit a pretty big milestone, a damn big milestone of six months. So welcome to the podcast, Odette. How does it feel to get back on here with six months? Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. It was um, circled on my calendar as well. And I've been on this journey for a couple of years now. So it's definitely nice to be back and just sharing a little bit of what I've learned along the way and just a little bit of a different perspective than my first time on the pod podcast, which was, I was only, I think, a week in. So some stuff has happened. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And Odette, let's give listeners a little background about yourself, uh, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and most important, what do you like to do for fun? Okay, so I am originally from Guadalajara in Mexico, but I've been in San Diego for almost 10 years. 
And I am a mom to two toddlers, Max and Sienna. I have a four and a half and a two and a half. So I am busy. I work full time at WeWork. I'm married and I love bowling for fun. It's probably my favorite thing. And I will fight anyone who says that it's not a sport because I think that it is. <laughs> I also love trying new teas for fun. Just learning how teas are brewed and discovering the benefits of them and how they're so ceremonial in Japan. One of my little interests in the last couple of years. Oh, and as of late, puzzling. You'll find me at the puzzle aisle. Oh, the puzzle aisle. But back to bowling. What's your highest bowling score? Uh, I don't, I think like 178 or something like that. Whoa, that's impressive actually. I have my own ball. Oh, okay. You have your own ball. All right. I will stop <laughs> acting like I know what I'm talking about because you'll quickly realize I don't. It is the one thing that my dad taught me and my siblings growing up. We weren't really a sports family, but we were a bowl family. Let's get, let's get this interview primed right now. How, <laughs> how is puzzling good for sobriety? Puzzling is really grounding. I feel like the only other thing that makes time go really fast, other than scrolling on Instagram, is puzzling. Like I'll look at the clock and then I'll start puzzling and listening to music and then I'll look at the clock again and like two hours went by and I'm like, whoa, like time just gets lost for me when I puzzle and it's just really, really grounding. So I, I do think it's a really good tool that not many recommend. <laughs> what is that metaphor in sobriety that can be applicable to puzzles? Is it like one, one something at a time? I, I forget. What is it? One, yeah, one, uh, one what? I, one, I've never heard of it either. puzzle piece togetherness? <laughs> I don't, I don't, uh, anyways, maybe another recovery podcast will know <laughs> that one. Odette, let's let's get a little background about your story. And, and, and listeners, I have asked Odette to, to give us a summary of up until the first podcast episode, which is July 31st, 2017. We won't go quite as far as in depth as the stories we normally would. And again, go back to that episode, episode 128, and listen. And the reason why is because I want to talk about the time after 128 to right now, which is 230. Gosh, so almost 102 weeks later, we got you back on. And so I want to focus on that time frame. And also, I really want to dive in the last six months. And there's there's some concepts that I want to talk with you about and ask you and, and, and go a little further deeper on these concepts uh, because we have a, a Zen master on the podcast today and her name is Odette. And guys, there is no sobriety requirement to get this uh, unofficial nickname that I've given you of a Zen master <laughs> warrior Odette. Um, I mean, it's just, you're, you're, you're so insightful. You're so grounding. And I just want to say thank you for being part of my journey. Um, it's been awesome. Thank you. I, I'm really happy to be here. And I, and I know that you mentioned I've been on the podcast before and, and definitely don't want to make this a, a drunk log where I go over the same stuff, but it, it's been a long journey for me. I, I've actually been in the recovery world for I'm going to say a decade. My dad's a recovering alcoholic and he's about to hit his tenure in the next month. So I was first exposed to recovery through him. I like saying that his addiction has become the biggest gift to not just me, but to our family. There's there's life after he hit his bottom and life before. And and it's just a milestone for me as a person. Like his his date is is a milestone for me. But I I also developed an eating disorder and that is my first addiction, if we have to label and call call it out and talk about it. So I, I've been just in this recovery world for a while, but in terms of drinking, I think I, I fall into the gray area drinker category where, where I don't have a catastrophic story to tell in terms of my relationship with alcohol. I definitely want to point out that there was a progression that I started noticing and the progression just started really gaining momentum. And that's when I found myself on my podcast application, Googling, am I an alcoholic? Or I mean, searching, am I an alcoholic? And Recovery Elevator popped up. So it's been, it's been a journey for me, really trying to figure out if I belong here, if I don't belong here, what am I doing? Do I really have a problem with alcohol? But I think what really changed things for me was something that I keep telling to people is you don't have to have a serious drinking problem to have a problem with drinking. I definitely know that I had a problem with drinking. Yeah, quick question. So with the eating disorder, was that something you felt like you had under control and, and then the drinking showed up or were you grappling with both at the same time? You know, I wasn't. When I started drinking more, 
I definitely was in control of my eating disorder and had been in recovery for probably two years. Uh, I went into treatment in 2013. I went to rehab for an eating disorder. And then I came out of treatment and I didn't drink much. I wasn't much of a drinker. And, and I know I've mentioned this on the other interview, but it's because caloric intake is something that us with eating disorders are really obsessive ah, about. Okay. So I know that the trackers and for people who exclusively struggle with alcohol, you know, you say, how many calories have you saved? Like, I could tell you that number without having to look at the tracker because something that people with eating disorders become an expert on is knowing calories and everything and you become a little math expert in your head. So I gave myself permission to drink once I gave myself permission to eat again because I wasn't giving myself that permission either. And I had it under control and I didn't want to do the research and I didn't want to pay attention to the research, but data is data and data shows that I'm going to have to fact check myself, but more than half of the women who recover from an eating disorder go then to become alcoholics. And oh, it's wow. really, it's really sad. It becomes a cross addiction issue. I'm also, like I've mentioned, an, a, a child of an alcoholic, which already puts me at a disadvantage as well. So like I said, I just was in denial of data that is just there and facts that are just there that I just was already, quote unquote, at a disadvantage in, in many ways. So I started noticing my progression and my eating was fine, but I started noticing that I was using alcohol as that warm blanket that I used to have my eating disorder be. So it just became a thing where it just felt very similar. I was like, I've done this before. Well, that, that brings me to a, a question I want to interject with right now. And so that stat, it, it's staggering high that you know, over 50% of, of women who struggle with an eating disorder then become addicted to alcohol, which for me is addiction whack-a-mole. That represents when the core disconnection internally hasn't been addressed and we replace the eating disorder with another addiction. And, and in this case, we're chatting about alcohol. Um, what's your thought on addiction whack-a-mole um, and, and the progression? Is, is it something that it, just the addiction showed up in a different area of your life? Yeah, so I I want to just address and, and, and something that I really have on my heart and want to make sure we talk about on the interview, if, if I can kind of wrap it into this, is that we have to be ambassadors of being graceful to ourselves and to others on this, because I think addiction whack-a-mole is a thing, not just for people who have multiple addictions, but it's real. So I encourage everyone to just accept it almost as a stepping stone in our journeys. It doesn't mean that it has to be awful and that you have to have a cross addiction or addiction whack-a-mole, but I think it's very normal and it's not talked about, but our, I think our brains are like, okay, you have this un under control. Now, what else can I hold on to? How else can I cope? And it's just part of being human. It's, it's really hard to face feelings and to face life like head on. So I think our brains are really smart and they're just like, okay, we're not doing this anymore. Now, what can we experiment with? And I think that's what happened to me. Sure. And there's a direction we don't want to go. I'm, I'm glad I didn't remove alcohol, then start smoking crack. Um, but yeah, I definitely experienced the addiction whack-a-mole, but the each addiction afterward was, was more manageable. And I was able to use the tools, the techniques I used to beat alcohol or to, to work with alcohol for the next one, you know, coffee, yeah. nicotine, things like that, ADD meds. Uh, yeah, like I love the ambassadors of, of compassionate curiosity or however you said that. I'm loving it. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, you, you just become aware. I think I just want to keep going on what you said about they become more manageable, not because it's easier, but because there's this awareness. You just made a post a couple of weeks ago of like, I've ruined drinking for so many people. And that's exactly what happens. It, it may become harder and, and the challenges never stop, but you have this sense of awareness and you have this little switch that goes on and you can't turn it off anymore even though you engage in these behaviors and may have 10 cups of coffee in the back of your mind I feel like if you're already on this recovery journey you know like you know what you're doing and what the reason behind what you're doing and that is what kind of becomes or allows the other whack-a-moles to become manageable you may do them and my therapist always says you may do the thing that you know is not ideal but you know that you're doing it as a, as a means to an end. So we're not perfect. You know, relapse is a thing. For me, I still sometimes eat when I'm not hungry and things that are part of my eating disorder chapter, but I'm aware of it. I'm like, oh, I just, I, I didn't want to feel the feeling. So I did that. And it, you just become aware. You just are woke. <laughs> <laughs> In their meditation <laughs> retreat I attended, uh, the, the, the leader said you could take the 100 best medicines in the West 
100 best medicines from the East, combine them, and you still wouldn't have the power of awareness. So I love how you said that, simply being aware of what's going on. And that's that goes hand in hand with intentions, right? So the awareness is when alcohol is ruined. Um, and that's when the intention has been heard by the universe. Both the subconscious, the conscious mind are operating in concert. And, and, and that's when some of those activities, the, like you said, you can still do them, but we're not going to get the same pleasure as we had before. Yeah, I love that. The coins of AA. I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with AA, but there are these chips that people collect with time. And the AA chips, you either collect them at like six months, a year, all the milestones. On the back of the chip, there's this like saying, I think it says like, thy true to yourself or thy something about being being true to yourself. And and I think that's what it's become for me. That's the, the compass that I have internally. When I knew that I was drinking for the wrong reasons, it just it felt like self-betrayal in a way. And that's where it gets tricky. That's where I want to really promote the being ambassadors of kindness and of grace, because I think recovery has this tendency of having this expectation of once you choose recovery, you have to have this perfect journey just because you're choosing recovery or sobriety. And and it's not a straight line. It's not perfect. It's full of challenges. And I think that you just really have to forgive yourself for whenever you do do the things that you know aren't best for you because we all do them you know it's either being on your phone for a long time or um, like I said eating five buckets of ice cream because you just don't want to deal with the feeling but you just really have to give yourself grace but also do what you know your compass is telling you to do and sometimes you're going to feel a little more brave than others but you know that that little like guiding light and, and you know that compass once you're aware and you just have to keep trying. You know, Debt, let's back it up a little bit on your journey. You mentioned how you first came to be on the podcast or how you first heard of the Recovery Elevator podcast. So we get you on, we do an interview. And again, that was July 31st, 2017. Walk us through those two years. I mean, you had one week of sobriety then. You have six months now. And so you you drank. um, And that, that was part of your story. Relapse was a huge part of my story. And I remember seeing a post from you where you're like, hey, guys, alcohol is not this like blatant issue in my life. The external damages aren't there yet. And I remember that was a difficult time for you to wrap your head around like, do I quit? Do I not quit? And I know a lot of listeners struggle with this at times. They'll say, you know what? Like, I'm not finding much traction quitting, but I'm also not seeing you know, like blatant damages in, in my external life. Talk to us about that time in your journey. Yeah, I struggled a lot because I'm a binary person and I know a lot of us in recovery are. Um, the, the gray area, not just with drinking, but the gray area of life is something that's a big lesson for me, you know, the journey. And I just, I love, I love fitting in boxes and I love labeling myself and it's something that in the last in this round in the last six months I've really been trying to detach from labels and roles and and what defines me as myself so I was stuck for a while there on my journey and trying to decipher whether or not I was an alcoholic or not and I know there's a lot of different feedback around this word but I was trying to check off the boxes like okay alcoholics these are the boxes non-alcoholics these are the boxes I still don't know where I fit even to this day but I have to start asking myself different questions instead of just the question of, do I belong here? And I'm an alcoholic because I didn't know if I belonged in Cafe RE that I've been a member for two years. I didn't know if I belonged in AA. I didn't know if I belonged with the normal people. And I was so obsessed with that outcome instead of just asking myself different questions. How am I feeling? What comes up when I drink? What am I trying to cope with? Uh, Why do I go for the drink? So I, I had to just start asking myself different questions because I was not getting different results by asking myself, am I an alcoholic or not? And I felt like alcohol wasn't adding anything to my life. So I just had to get a little creative with that question process, like self-inquiring process. I love um, it. I had to start asking different questions. It sounds like you stopped asking, where do I need to be? Like, what box do I need to check? What label do I need to be put under? Instead, he started asking, where am I at right now? And recognized that alcohol was not adding any value to your life. Yeah. And I, the, the hardest one for me, and if, if I have to be honest, I know you ask this to people often is, have you discovered why you drink or why did you, wh- what was alcohol replacing? And I have a lot of fears from being an adult 
child of an alcoholic. I have a huge fear of abandonment. I have a huge fear of non be not belonging. And these two fears are surprisingly not addiction fears. Most people struggle with the fear of not belonging and the feel of not being worthy enough of love. That's like a universal fear. But I noticed that even though I wasn't this blackout drunk on the regular, I noticed that I was going for the drink in order to feel like I belonged, in order to feel accepted, in order to maintain the status quo with other people while that kept on feeling like I wasn't belonging to myself. That was what really started waking me up. And it was scary because that means that I have to choose myself over other people. When you're not used to that, it doesn't feel good when you start doing it. When I joined Cafe RE and when I came on here the first time, I just remember being so excited about this. But then I gained, I think it was 115-ish days that first time. And I was feeling so disconnected from some of my other relationships that I just drank in order to go back to that status quo where I belonged in my oh, life. To go back to routine, to the comfort of the known. Is that what I'm hearing? Exactly. Because Whoa, we okay. big fear of the unknown as yeah, we've chatted. <laughs> we have a couple times. So I, I drank and I drank probably for like two or three months after that first long streak. And then... I knew it. I, I knew like I have to get back on this wagon where I'm just being true to myself. So I went back and you guys have always been super non-judgmental. So thank you to my recovery family. But I went back to, okay, I'm not going to drink. And then once again, for me, it's always, it's always the most challenging part at the 90 day mark. Everyone is different. I kind of ride this pink cloud at the beginning. And then when I hit 90 to 100 days, for me, shit hits the fan. So I felt the uncomfortableness again at around that mark. And it felt, that's why I love relapse. It felt, it was a reminder. Like I felt this before, this happened to me last time. What is this trying to teach me? But I couldn't deal with the discomfort again. And I went back out. Well, Dad, was, let's unpack the unknown for a second because you just brought it up. And, and, and this is why this journey to sobriety, despite being on a pink cloud, despite losing weight, despite having more energy we've ever had in our entire lives, despite not getting traffic violations, work infractions, you get the point. Um, we're entering in the unknown, which is so uncomfortable. And when the body is in the unknown, that means that we're not building our future based off past experiences. The protective personality, the ego is not predicting the future anymore. That's the unknown. And it's terrifying. It can get uncomfortable, but that's where sobriety is located. Talk to us about the unknown and how you have leaned into it and embraced it lately. The unknown is, yeah, it's, it's very scary for me. You know, we, we want to know, we want that certainty. And like I said, I knew, I knew this third, third time that I've gone stack days. I knew this third time that that fear was going to creep up on me. And I, I've just sur surrounded myself with people who have really good messages around fear because I don't expect that fear to go away. You know, I feel like there's this messaging that's out there of being fearless and, and not have and get in like punching fears in the face and moving past your fears and eliminating all fears. And I think that's the problem that I don't think my fear is going to go anywhere. It's how I react to it. I need to learn to be brave in the presence of my fear instead of hoping that it's different this time that I'm not fearless. I've just learned to develop a different relationship with my fear to where Elizabeth Gilbert, this author who wrote Eat, Pray, Love and Big Magic, she says, like, when fear comes up, I just remember, like, it's going to be there. I just tell my fear, you can sit on the co-pilot seat, but I'm driving. The point is not letting fear drive because it's paralyzing and then sabotaging. But don't expect you can't just shove fear out of the out of the car and keep driving. It's going to be there. Learn learn to live with it. So I think I've just had a different perspective around fear. I've had a different perspective around letting go and accepting and surrender because I have a really hard time with the concept of surrender that is paired with the unknown. I have to believe that things are going to work out without me knowing what that looks like. And that sounds so simple, but it's really hard for me at least to act on it. And our good friend in common, Trisha Lewis, this time around, she does Recovery Happy Hour podcast. The sobriety, been, the, the unicorn of sobriety. I love that, yeah. Uh, she's my unofficial sponsor, I always tell her. But 
she has always just really encouraged me to surrender every morning and say, just give me the help that I need to stay sober today. And it's okay that I don't know how it's going to happen. Just give me the strength, help me surrender. And I think that's helped me surrender to the unknown, just letting go of control. I'm a, I think that fear of the unknown is paired with control issues that many of us have. And it's just, it's one of the, the challenges that I've had once removing all substances and the eating disorder is working on defects of character and control is a big one for me. Yeah. So the surrender concept in, in, in some teachings in, in the 12 step rooms, which is a big part of my, my journey, it's a powerless over alcohol. Admitted we are powerless over alcohol, which sure that's, I agree with that. But the, the, the version I like is we're surrendering to the person who we've always meant to be. And therefore we're entering into the unknown because we haven't been that person yet. And you said this earlier, the word trust. And I want to talk a little bit about this because it's a great time to steer this conversation in this direction is you mentioned you have to trust or you have to know that everything is going to work out, but you don't know how it's a difficult one to conceptualize, but what does trust look like for you? And how do you know that everything is going to work out in your favor? Almost to say that this thing called life might be rigged in your favor. <laughs> what rigged in our favor. <laughs> Can't be. It has to be. It's the only way it can be. The only way it can be, and I, I have to really just say and give a shout out to my parents. I mean, they have a hard time with English, so probably won't be hearing this. But Carlos just hit 10 years of sobriety. Yes. I met him in person at the Dallas uh, retreat we had a couple years ago. Freaking rock star. He's a rock star. And, and my parents, they're just, they're optimists. And so I do think there's this thing about just the way that I was raised and my parents are risk takers, believing that things will always work out. And I believe that. I believe people are doing the best that they can. I know some people don't believe that. I'm, I'm of that breed that believes that people are doing the best that they can, that things will work out in everyone's favor. I just have a harder time not having a plan that I can execute because I'm such a perfectionist. So I want to follow the steps. Just give me a book, give me the instruction manual so that I can know the outcome because I know how to pass a test. But it doesn't really work that way. I think that surrender for me, like you said, also has to do with believing and surrendering to this version of ourselves, but also letting go and believing that I'm not in charge of everything because I'm not. And that's part of my ego that I think that I am in charge of everything and that I can be in charge of everything. And that is something that I've had to like completely drop. I no longer want to be in charge of everything. Like that doesn't serve me anymore. It was just a part of my identity. Growing up, I was very helpful and I was very resourceful to my parents because I was the English speaker in the family. So I just adopted that identity that I could take on everything. And I, I, I don't, you know, I'm just a little blip in the universe. And I just believe that I want to live in a world where I just believe that things are going to work out. I, I can't just be living every day thinking that the world is out to get me. I don't think that's the way to enjoy it. Yeah. So the concept of trust piggybacks off another concept, and that's that knowledge alone is not enough on this journey. And many of us, when we first begin this alcohol-free lifestyle with a hunger, uh, we pull every self-help book off the shelf. I know I read 15 or 20 recovery books before I, well, I've read them all, not all of them, but I read, I've read a ton. And, and, and then I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm informed, I'm armed with all the knowledge, the tips and, and techniques to get sober. And then two and a half years later, I was drinking and I was struggling big time. Um, and that's where this concept of trust comes in because knowledge alone, I feel it's substantial in the beginning, but knowledge piggybacks, it's coupled with willpower. The further away you go, the further down this journey you go, the less you're relying on knowledge and willpower and more you're hitching your wagon to this trust thing. And I don't think it's even, I don't even think it's an optimistic or pessimism view or an optimistic view. It's, it's in my experience as of late, especially in this last year and at times it's been frightening. It's rigged in our favor. And I'm, I, have, I'm tr I have to trust now more than ever. Yeah, I, I agree. And I have to be honest, I didn't re-listen to my interview, that first one. So I remember our conversation, but I never listened to it. Once it came out, I was terrified. But I remember telling you that I was doing all the things in terms of knowledge. You know, I was checking off all the boxes and working out and listening to a podcast every day and reading all these books. But it's, it's not what's working for me right now. I, I'm really 
just digging deeper in terms of quieting the mind. There's a lot of chatter. And I think that what has kept me in it in a different way this time is that I've just been really trying to tune in with myself and not trying to have all of these external factors like knowledge and books and 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 other people push me, propel me forward. I, I do feel like that it has to do with this deeper connection with myself and finding stillness and really connecting with my intuition. And that really has nothing to do with anything external like books or knowledge. Like it is useful and I agree with you, but at the same time, it's not what I'm trusting to bring me out on the other side. Let's talk about the concept of internal versus external. So when I first started, the bulk of my recovery portfolio was external. I would go for runs. I would drive places, meet with other people on this journey. I ate external food that was good for me. Um, everything was external. And the further I go down this journey, it's it swapped until I don't want to put a percentage on it, but it's like 90, 10 internal and 10% external. Like I'm, I'm running, um, like everything I'm doing is because the body's telling me to do it. I'm, I'm taking the body for a walk or a run and instead of vice versa. Where is this with you? Yeah, I, I think we're on, on similar, I don't know if I'm at the 90-10 as you, Mr. Sensei Paul, but uh, <laughs> but I definitely think that it's it's shifting for me to where I'm starting to really discover a lot of things. And for me, a lot of it is linked, it is actually linked with my eating disorder because I did not have a connection with my body at all. I just completely shut off from from what my body was telling me and our friend in common too, Kim, who does brain spotting, she always just advises me when I go to her, like, how does it feel in your body? As you're saying this, what are you feeling in your body? Not what are you thinking? What does it feel like in your body? So for me, the focus has been internal and it has been really physical in the sense of like, it's uncomfortable, but it does my breathing get harder? Does my stomach hurt? Do I get a knot in my stomach? Do I feel like I want to cry all of a sudden? And, and those things are really easy to shut down from when you have a list of things to follow when you wake up and you're like okay I need to go for a run then I need to do this 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 it's so easy to disconnect from that source that is so ironically so close to us which is our body but I'm also really trying to just follow those signs that are more physical instead of the thought yeah absolutely and that gal Kim she's going to be doing brain spotting workshops at, at the retreat this upcoming August and Odette, you're going to be helping out. I'm excited. Uh, I cannot wait for this retreat. Talk to us about how fun it is to meet up with others at these events. I know you keep calling it retreat, but we all keep call calling it sober camp. We're like counting down for sober camp. <laughs> it's like, just a big party where we laugh and our cheeks hurt. So fun. I mean, I, I had the honor to attend Dallas and then Nashville, and this will be my, my third retreat. I've also done a couple of in-person meetups, but there's such amazing fuel and and truly the friendships that you make in recovery are family. And, you know, I was just like I said, it, my dad's turning 10 years and I was just in Guadalajara a couple of weeks ago and he had his his testimonial celebration at AA a couple of weeks early so that I could be there and, and other family members. And all of his friends were like, it's like a club, you know, all, all of his friends were like, this is this is the biggest gift you know, having each other, having this community. And, and that's what our, our trips are like. We count down. We're all in different parts of the country. And, and I'm counting down to see all my buddies. And it's just fun. It's so fun. We don't even talk about alcohol when we're just chatting. We're just having fun. Odette, in these last six months, can you talk to us about a time where it got tough and how you overcame it without alcohol? Yeah. So I know I talk about, it sounds, I'm very bubbly and I talk about being optimistic and trusting, but I, I truly believe that the last, maybe not six months, but probably three to four months have been extremely challenging for me in many ways, personally, uh, in terms of all of these layers that are coming up, the, the further I go into this process, the more that I discover about myself. And when I look at myself in the mirror, I'm extremely grateful to see my reflection and I'm extremely accepting of myself, but it's also really raw and heartbreaking sometimes to deal with what you need to deal with. And I've done a lot of reconciling in the last five, five, six, six months. I've been working on reconciling decisions from the past that I'm not very happy about or that have brought me a lot of pain. 
I'm not living in the past, but reconciling with what has brought me here has been hard because ultimately we are responsible for where we are standing at right this second. And that takes a lot of forgiving and reconciling and accepting. And I've had a lot of anger come up that I've been projecting and and my therapist, I know I've brought her up a couple of times already, but she, I'm so grateful for her. She really checks me and checks my blind spots, but she's like, I think you're just mad at yourself. You need to go and give yourself a hug. You're just so mad at yourself. You need to reconcile. You need to forgive. Consciously, I'm choosing to move forward. Consciously, I choose to be in the present, but there's still this dissonance with my subconscious and a lot of the baggage that I'm still trying to unpack and and forgive myself for. So it's been rough. You know, it's been rough. And I, and to be honest with you, I, I'm really happy that I've made it this far without relapsing in my eating disorder and that I've made it this time around to six months without drinking because it's been the hardest. It gets harder each time for me. But I'm also still standing and I've discovered that I can that I can do this without drinking and without relapsing in my eating disorder. So it feels good. Why do you think it gets harder? It gets harder. I don't know the exact answer, but I just read an article I shared with you and a couple of other people that Brene Brown wrote on her 23 years of sobriety. And she said, it's hard when you're just a turtle without a shell. You know, you when you're truly trying to live a life where you are no, not grabbing on to something external to comfort you, it feels really hard. But it also feels really good. So it's, it's the yin to the yang. You know, it, for, every, for every big pain and every big struggle comes this huge joy that's unveiled in, a, in a, maybe in a completely different way. But it's that the fact that we have the capacity to take on all of these feelings that are really hard to sit with also means we have this capacity for joy that I didn't really think that I had. And that's the scary part, that I didn't think that I was deserving of the joy. As much as we hate being in pain, for me, being in pain and in the drama was actually my comfort zone for a long time, instead of the joy being the comfort. Not that you need you need to have both, but it's interesting how foreign the joy was for me. So sometimes it even feels scary to to feel the good things if we have to label them because it's not what I'm used to and I'm finally believing that I I can have them and that I deserve them and that and that and that I can just lean into the good feelings as well. Let's chat about joy for a second. And I don't know for 100% certainty but I don't think joy was even an emotion that was present in my life when I was drinking. It was either happy or sad. But, uh, you know, that, 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 that arrow was tipped more in the sad category, but I was always chasing happiness, which was usually found externally. And so happiness by definition has to have something to define it. And that's the sad. So you can't always be happy just by definition. You have to have sad to have happy. And the, the further I went down with that alcohol, this new emotion, this new internal sensation that showed up around the heart area showed up. And even on shit days, when life just happens, we all have good days and bad days, but even on those bad days, this warm emotion in, in the heart, heart area was still there and it's joy. Talk to us about this emotion and when did it first show up for you? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I share that with you in that it was almost like this roller coaster where you're like chasing the highs and then dramatic lows and and, and, and getting upset over things that don't even require the attention and I, I do think I was I was stuck in that roller coaster for a while. And I feel like now I just aim for more of a I don't want to use the word stagnant, but more of like a what's a good word in English? Second language, just like an <laughs> just like a content equilibrium, homeostasis, even, yeah, baseline. Even, I'm like a super high energy person by nature. But sure. But I also fact. just let <laughs> fact. But I also just let things pass me by. And I found that for me, joy means being so present. Like I find joy in the smallest things. It's not the big things that you can check off your list. You know, I'll find myself getting teary eyed, like looking at my daughter or just driving and listening to a song. It, it's joy for me is found in the simple things. And it's found in the quietness. It, it's interesting. It's a good question. I don't know if I have the words, but it, it's been probably in the last 
year and a half that I feel like joy has come hand in hand with slowing down, period. I think that's the elusivity of joy is it comes, it's like a wild beast, right? We have to cultivate an environment where it just shows up. We can't go looking for joy. Like with happiness, we can. I can go on a roller coaster and be friggin' happy for, mm-hmm. for 90 seconds. That's easy to find. But joy, that's a different thing. It's just like a hummingbird, a moose, or that, that, that wild animal encounter in nature. It shows up when the conditions are right. And like you mentioned, the more I've slowed down, the more this, this, this wild beast called joy, um, which it feels like, like, a, like a penguin has just taken a nap on my chest. It does. It is like the butterfly in the net. And I know we've talked about it in the, in, in Cafe Ari before, but it's like, you can be this kid with your butterfly net and you're in this garden that's full of butterflies and you're trying really hard to catch them. So you're running around, you see one and you run and try to get one and you try to get the other one. And they're all just like frantically flying away from you. But then if you just sit down and just hold your net out and you just look at the butterflies and see how pretty they are and maybe you don't have to wait that long and one just comes and comes close to the net or sits on your shoulder for a little bit and you can just look at it and take a deep breath. That's it. And it's the, the still, the stillness in life that presents this joy. It's the small things. That's, that's how it has to be. We don't have to have these grandiose endeavors, goals, accomplishments, achievements, the materialism, et cetera. None of that stuff is tied with joy. Took me a while yeah. to realize that, Odette. I mean, I went down that road hard <laughs> with businesses. <laughs> I'm in a bar in Spain. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm not like level 10 guru master. I'm not there even close now. But even like ever, uh, it took me, I had to learn that one the friggin' hard way. I did. But I'm so yeah. thankful that I'm here. And, and you know what you're saying, I, I think a lot of it has been a shift too from the external to the internal. And I just want to say for those people who are on this journey or wanting to be on this journey, it takes so much patience with the people that are in your external world and the environment. Because if you've treated people in a certain way or your environment is used to being a certain way and you start changing, it does get a little bit tricky. You know, when you start changing there's a little bit of t- turmoil because things people are used to you behaving in a way. So it takes time. And I think for me, at least, that was one of the driving factors of relapse of that resistance that I felt to change. And it's just, it's, a, it's, it's uncomfortable in the body, but it does get better. Now, is there a concept at six months or a concept or a theme or a recovery approach tool, et cetera, that you're working with? For example, when I first started the podcast, I was about month five to six and burning the ships was a big one. And I did it in the format of an MP3 on iTunes. And now I'm exploring intentions and how when intention is set and both the conscious and the unconscious mind are on the same page as intention, this compassionate universe will always without fail deliver the result of your intention. It just won't happen the way we always like it or the way we can imagine. But that's something that I'm deepening with. What about you? What themes are you exploring at this moment in your recovery? Yeah, burning the ships. I did that too. Burned the ships on Facebook and then threw myself a 30-year-old birthday party with margaritas with the same people that saw my post. I love it. That was not my best strategy, but intention is a good one. I've really been going back to the outcome word. that's, That's kind of been my approach, not being tied to an outcome. I know that the the recovery outcome is is sobriety and to stay sober one day at a time and to keep going but outcomes in terms of my life in terms of people's reactions in terms of opportunities that may come my way in terms of how things are going out at work just external outcomes i'm not tied to outcomes and i do feel like i was at the beginning of the journey you know i was expecting this to get better this to change this door to open up this door to close, this person to change around me. And that wasn't working for me. So just really the the surrender to an outcome that I can't even imagine, but that I know, that I trust, that is what is the better outcome for me and what is being shaped in the process. You know, I don't know if that made sense, but just letting go of control. You know, I was very controlling in the first attempts and just not being in control while still taking action. Yeah, well, that's the same thing as trust earlier. If you're not tied to a specific outcome, 
Instead, you can trust whatever the outcome is, right? So there's people when they quit drinking for a year, for example, you hear stories how they got a six-figure income, the promotion, a job, like everything in the world just seems to be buttoned up, come together nice and tight. For others, at year one of sobriety, life is still unraveling. There are things in your life that you wish to hold on to, but they're going the opposite direction. And so that is an outcome that when we first quit drinking, that we don't expect, that we didn't necessarily ask for. But as we chatted earlier, we know that life is rigged in our favor. There's this underlying trust in the whole process, in the order of things, that that outcome is still working in our favor, even though that's not what we would have picked at all. Does that resonate with you? Yeah. And also that a good one too, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up, an understanding and an acceptance that my story is nobody but my own's. And I don't know if that makes sense, but I do tend to fall in that comparison trap and I've, I've gotten way better about it, I think, but I think it's a, it's something that many of us in recovery struggle with and in life, but comparing your journey to other people's, but this person, every, this happened at their six month mark, this happened at their year mark and really accepting my story and my truth and knowing that there is no other Odette and there is no other Paul and that things may look very different for me than for the person sitting next to me, but I'm still being able to validate all my feelings. I'm still doing the best that I can. I'm still trusting that everything's going to work out, but tangibly it may look completely different, but just really staying on my lane, you know, always stay on your lane, stay on your lane is like one of the best pieces of advice I've received. Like, so easy to get distracted and so much easier to focus on what the other person's doing. And, and for me going into that victim role of like, why didn't this happen when I deserved it? If I've been in recovery for this long and it's just really staying one foot in front of the other on your lane without comparing yourself and, and being honest with yourself. And I know listeners are curious. And so am I walk us through a day in your recovery. What does it look like from start to finish? So my days are are busy and I'm really trying to challenge that narrative. I, I do feel like a lot of my breakthroughs have come through doing less and staying still, but we get thrown out this idea that we have to be busy all the time and that means we're productive and, and I struggle with that personally. I've really learned to enjoy to have slower days, but I do have jam-packed weekdays due to the fact that I work full-time, I have two kids, I'm married. It's just, it's busy. Uh, I'm an early riser. I wake up between 4.30 and 5. I really think that exercise is one of my biggest tools in my tool belt. I love running. Uh, I love doing a little video workout, anything that just kind of gets my blood going. I try to do that first thing in the morning. I'm a big fan of Melody Beattie's The Language of Letting Go, uh, small daily passages every day. So I, I also start my day by reading the passage getting my workout in and I spend a little bit of quality time with the family, go to work. I usually listen to a podcast or Marco Polo, which is just kind of a little app that I use to stay in touch with people who don't live here. Go to work, work all day. Usually I take my lunch break outside. I work in a building that is beautifully designed, but nature is another one of my big tools. I just love feeling the fresh air in my face and going out on a long walk during my lunch break. Then I'll come home, busy, busy mom, chores, cooking dinner, making lunches. Golden rule is BBT, bed by 10. Mm. I love waking up early, but I also think sleep is very important and I respect sleep. I'm at this point in my life where it's just busy and it, and it feels like a lot of routine things with the kids and, and that's just the way that it is. So I try to be very intentional with the blocks of time that I have to myself. I love puzzling before bed and having some sleepy tea and maybe watching a little show, but weekends are way less structured and that's what I've learned to enjoy most where I don't have to be looking at the clock. I don't feel like I'm rushed. I can just slow down and have my coffee in the morning without having to change diapers and do everything in less than 20 minutes. So I'm actually really enjoying something that I was not able to enjoy years back, which is non-structure. For me and my eating disorder, it's interesting. I fell under the category of anorexic-ish, and those people tend to love rules, thrive on structure, thrive on just checking off boxes. And, and that has been me for a long time. 
and something shifted. I, I, I find a lot of comfort in, in not having structure now. And that's been a big measure of progress in my recovery, something you can't really, it's not a tangible, but that's been a huge win for me, just allowing myself to surrender to the present moment. But yeah, I mean, it's just busy, Paul. It's, it's a busy time, but try to always have fun. Uh, you know, I, I think life's too short to not have dance parties in the kitchen. Uh, Camilo, Latin music. Camilo, <laughs> yeah, love it. <laughs> Listeners, I have a hunch. You mentioned Brene Brown earlier with 23 years of sobriety. She's she's doing great work in this field. But I just have this like gut wisdom or this gut intuition that Odette, you I you're you're so good at this. And I think later down the road in the future, um and let's not attach any success to a future date or happiness, but Oh, Ted, I think you're going to have a big place on the recovery stage. Let's just put it that way. And she has a phenomenal channel on Instagram called the Harmony Tribe, where it's just filled with uplifting inspirational value bombs to piggyback off the 712 value bombs you've already dropped. And so just keep doing it. It's so awesome to watch your journey and be part of it. Thanks for allowing me to be part of it. Thank you, Paul. It is definitely one of my, it's on my bucket list and it's definitely on my, on my dream list to do some sort of work in the field. Uh, I'm working through a certification to help people with eating disorders. And I just, I know I've helped with a couple of events with Cafe RE and I just, I love volunteering. I love event planning and I love just serving this community. You know, it's, it's important to me. It's very important to me and, and it matters and it makes me, it helps me and it helps me stay in recovery. It helps me stay aligned with my intention and my purpose. So Whatever the outcome looks like, I'd love to keep keep just being being in it. So thank you so much for letting me share. Love it. You know, Dad, I got two questions before we depart. In regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Oh, gosh. And the next one is what parting piece of guidance? Oh, and then you know how we close it out. You might be an alcoholic gift line. So three, three items ready to go. So the best advice I've ever, ever received is you can't do this alone, which I think I said this in my first one, but I want to attach what I think was very useful for me. I already know I can't do this alone. You can't do this alone, but you have to be your own cheerleader. And I can't emphasize this enough. You're the only one that's in your head. And for me, for me at least personally, being someone who's so high functioning on the outside, you never know what people are going through. Only you know what's going on in your in your brain, in your mind, in your heart. So People, I, at least in my journey, people told me that I was fine. And I had to believe that little voice in my, in my little cheerleader voice in my head saying, you're not fine. You have to be your own advocate. You have to be your own cheerleader. You have to do what's right for you. Only, I, I really believe only you know what, what that is. So always, of course, surround yourself with people who are going to lift you up. And I could not do this without so many people. But listen to what you need and advocate for yourself. Can that be like two in one? What was <laughs> yeah, that's good. In fact, somebody emailed me a question the other day, and I'm going to do a whole podcast topic on this. It says, you know, can you clarify that you can't do this alone? Because ironically, like I said, there's so many pickles in this journey. You can't do this alone, but eventually it all starts inside alone. Like it's, it's you, you kind of have to do this alone at the end of the day. It, it, it is. And I'm going to cover that more in depth because I know some listeners are like, what? That makes no sense. I know it doesn't. But we'll chat. Keep your eyes open for that podcast coming out soon. And what parting piece of advice can you give to listeners? Trust your gut. Okay. Love it. Yep. Trust your gut. Trust your gut. Try to take all the noise away. Trust your gut. And uh, you might be an alcoholic if you burn all the ships and, and you still drink. And then... <laughs> Oh, I know a lot of people can resonate with that one, which is totally fine. Odette, thank you so much for joining us again. Love it. Thank you so much, Paul. Thanks for having me. Before we close out today, I had a couple emails from listeners about last week's podcast episode, which was calming the mind. And we discussed meditation. They said, hey, how about a meditation? So just to let you know, that is a fantastic idea. I'm swirling around with it. I made a call to a guy, actually the guy who does the intro and outro music for this podcast. His name is DJ Ben. I think he's on SoundCloud. And uh, I asked him if he can make some meditative music. And I want to do some meditations specifically for those who are ditching the sauce, getting rid of that shit alcohol. So be on the lookout. 
Um, it is, um, it's actually been a project on my whiteboard for a while is I've been deepening with meditation myself, especially when I did that silent meditation retreat, I was like, wow, this is so powerful. I want to find a way that I can make this more applicable to those who want to quit alcohol. So before I leave you, I want to say one line and just sit with this. All fears stem from seeking inner peace from the outside world. Hmm. Recovery elevator. This isn't a no to alcohol, but a yes to a better life. I love you guys.